This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. This week, your host Michael Green speaks with the delightful and singular Judge John Smallwood. John's life in the law began with a now-defunct articled clerk's course, saw him running back-to-back murder trials for over a decade, spending many years on circuit and in the Koori Court, and even included breaks early on to hitchhike around America and run a second-hand store in Richmond called the Zucchini Sisters. John was well known for his unique advocacy style, which he honed over many years. But when he started out, it was observing some outstanding barristers that really opened his eyes to what was possible in a courtroom. And then I juniored Vernon, and I'd just never seen anything like it. I'd been told what a great advocate he was, but to see Bobby Vernon talk to a jury was just... His power of um, simile and stuff, it was just... And he, and he moved around the courtroom, and he just his whole... He took over the room. So he's talking to the jury, and he was just, it was just, you know, just fantastic. And what was happening was that the prosecutor, in those days, the Supreme Court had right, the chairs, but they had rollers on them, right? They'd got rid of the benches, but there were chairs with rollers on them. He had the big, you know, Bob's talking to the jury. And I'd been told by another barrister, don't go anywhere near the bar table while he's addressing, right? Just stay away from him while he's addressing, right? He can, he can do anything. So he, he walks up to the prosecutor from behind, and the prosecutor's sitting there, he's looking at the prosecutor's looking at the jury, he's only about five feet away. And, and Bob says to the jury, he says, um, he says, ladies and gentlemen, he said, is that little man looking at you? And they all started nodding, you know. He said, is that little man making faces at you? And they all nodded at Bob. So Bob goes up. The prosecutor didn't know it was coming because he couldn't hear him coming. Carpet, you know. Gets his chair, with, throws the chair down the bar table with him sitting in it and yells, behind me, Satan. <laughs> 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 Today our guest in Lies in the Law is His Honour, John Smallwood of the County Court of Victoria. Welcome, John. Yeah, thanks, mate. John, you're a bush kid from the small town of Foster in Gippsland. Your dad was the local pharmacist and your mum worked in the pharmacy and did some school teaching. Sounds like an idyllic childhood. Um, yeah, it was, uh, sort of. <laughs> and then I was, um, and then I, from when I was sent to boarding school and she all sort of changed there for a while. Look, I, primary school and stuff, I still got, you know, lots of mates from primary school and it was just, um, even my teenage years, I went to Zave and got thrown out of there, as you probably know, but, um, then I went down to some Pats in Sale and that was just a, um, it was basically a footy ground with some classrooms. So I just spent, till I was 18, just did nothing but, you know, play cricket and footy and... Yeah, it was great. It was good. It's not a bad childhood, is it? No, no. Yeah, it was a boy right. in Victoria at that time to be able to play cricket and footy all the time. Now, when you finished secondary school at St Pat's in Ballarat there. Sale. Sale, mate. Oh, St Pat's Sale. Oh, yeah, no, the Christian brothers never got at me. Oh, it's, it's the Morris brothers, yeah. <laughs> Morris brothers, yeah. Yeah, okay, right, I apologise. Yeah. You didn't get into uni. No. But you did the article Clark's course at RMIT. Now, as someone who did law at university, I thought the article Clark's course was a far better preparation for legal practice than university, and I think it's a real pity that it no longer exists. Can you tell us about the course? Yeah. It was difficult. Um, my recollection is that there are 120 of us started in the first year um, and it went for five years, and I think 13 of us finished within that time frame. Now, a number transferred to Monash during it, but what you did was you had... Um, you worked at the office from nine to five, then you had your lecture starting at six o'clock in the morning, shoots at seven o'clock at night, nearly all from barristers. So the, the standard of teaching was fantastic. It was all practical. So it was pretty hard. I've, I've, in retrospect, I, I got married you know, very early 
And I reckon if I hadn't been married, I wouldn't have got through it. It was just that s- stability. Um, and then we also, of course, um, teamed up so that one person would go to a lecture and take really copious notes just because you just couldn't, um, you couldn't do it. But I've got no doubt that um, I walked out of that basically with the, the experience of a you know, 50-year solicitor. And that's what I thought when yeah. I when I was an article clerk and there were guys who I'd spent four years at university and then a year of articles. They spent five years doing the article clerk's course. They were light years ahead of me in terms of being competent practitioners. Yeah. But I, I was, I was um, dealing with clients at 19 years old, um, you know, and, and a bre- had a breach of promise action. <laughs> I was only 19. You had, you had to sort of pretend you're had some qualifications. In looking through your time at RMIT doing the article class course, according to my memory, one of your lecturers, a barrister, a practising barrister, finished up a high court judge, Daryl Dawson. Yeah. Another one finished up a federal court judge, Edward Woodward. Yep. And Hartley Hanson on the Supreme Court. Now, I mean, they're just three that... Oh, yeah, Jeff, uh, Jeff, was Jeff Byrne. Supreme Court? Yeah. Uh, County Court. County Court. I can't think as I sit here, but there are a bunch of them, yeah. So you had outstanding and, – and, and the teaching was all practical. It wasn't too theoretical. No, it wasn't too theoretical. It was very practical. Like, I mean, um, when we did uh, – like, actually, you'll, you'll appreciate this. When we did, uh, like, magistrates court crime, um, we got Ray Dunn. And that was just, and it was that an education. <laughs> now we should say Ray Dunn was the president of the football club at which I played football. And Ray Dunn used to stack the Richmond Magistrates Court whenever a Richmond footballer was charged. There'd be nine JPs that all turn up and outvote the magistrate. Now you get admitted, I think, in 1976. So you've done yeah, the Article Clerks course. You've been in in the profession for five years, yep. and you take off for 12 months. Yep. Hitchhiking around the US with your wife. Yep. A, a gap year. You're ahead of your time, actually, John, in having a gap year back then. Oh, I'd had enough. Um, yeah, I guess that's yeah. It looks at that way. It is. I got some money from being pranked up in a car accident. Um, instead of using it as a deposit in a house, let's just let's just go to America. You know, cost free. So we just hitchhiked, um, packed a couple of. I went, before we got to America, I went and watched a test match at Lords, and then we just went and just wandered around the states for you know, eight, nine, ten months. And you enjoyed it? Yeah, it was math fascinating. Just getting picked up by people. I reckon we would have spent in the whole eleven months maybe ten nights in paid accommodation. The rest was when we camped one night. The rest was in people's houses. If we start, you hitchhike in Georgia and they're taking you home. Yeah, <laughs> just such generous people. That's yeah. what's so sad when you see what's happening there at the moment. But because um, the country people are just so generous and I loved it. Yeah. Had hair down my waist, and you wouldn't, wouldn't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I would believe it, actually. I'd absolutely believe it. Yeah. Now, you come back. Yep. You join a small firm in Bay Morris, I think maybe a sole practitioner yeah, in Bay Morris. Yep, Adrian Mackay. And you do injuries law. Yep. And a bit of everything, everything that moved. But you got sick of it after a few years, and so you and your wife opened a second-hand store in Richmond. Yep. What was it called? Zucchini Sisters. Why did you call her the Zucchini no, Sisters? Because she, she originally she was going to do a gardening business with another girl that she knew, and they were going to call themselves the Zucchini Sisters. So the business, the name was registered. So once it was registered, we just thought we'd decide to do it. And then it was like a, more of a junk shop than a secondhand shop. But the beauty of it was that the sign Zucchini Sisters, we'd get up and there'd be donations left at the door. They thought we were nuns, I think. <laughs> so for a while there we got donations. But, yeah, I didn't, it wasn't so much getting sick of it. My first child was born. And I just wanted to um, co-parent and after about, when she was very little, we just thought, this is not on, what can we do together so we can, so that's what we decided to do. Plus, both of us had a, I mean, I'm an inveterate collector. Yeah, so that was why we did that. We were there for a few years. And did it work out? I don't know. I, I mean, I, commercially? I, I don't know. The books were fantasy. Look, it was hand to mouth. But yeah, look, we, we sort of, we survived, you know, and I used, after a year or so, I realised, this can't go on forever. 
So I started um, teaching up at the RMIT. So I was teaching um, legal studies to... Um, in the article clerks course? No, 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 I didn't do that. No, I was teaching um, year, year 12 and they do it through TAFE. Oh, yeah. So I was yeah. teaching legal studies to, um, and I had um, a bunch of blokes that worked for the railways, actually, who used to come up and do legal, and they were fantastic. They were good. So, yeah, I did that, and that made enough money to sort of make sure the rent got paid. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar the perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. More information can be found on their website, themelbournemap.com.au. So, John, after a quite a circuitous route, you become a barrister in 1985. You lucked out with a very good mentor, yeah. Colin Hillman. Yep. I, um, I, when I was doing the article class course, Colin had been my tutor in um, evidence and also property, and I just felt there was somebody for some reason or other I could communicate with. His nickname at the bar, he'd, he'd gone to the bar to do equity, believe it or not, and he'd end up doing crime, mainly prosecuting. His nickname was The Smiler because he didn't do it all that often. But the thing with Colin was that um, he was just meticulous um, and very, um, I think, almost proud of, 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 of being a mentor in that, reader, in that reader's role. He would, um, every night, um, I would be given an area that you weren't taught about, you never did at uni. He might spend two hours with me teaching me how to tender documents. He might spend two hours with me explaining the rule, all the rules relating to records of interview um, and basically wouldn't let me leave until I could, until he was satisfied that I understood. Colin was very meticulous and very almost mathematical about it in some ways um, and he always made sure so that when I was on my feet in a courtroom, I never had to say, can you give me five minutes while I look it up? That practical on your feet stuff he taught me in that first nine months so well. We did get on really well in the sense of just of understanding each other and I I mean, it was now element of choice because I knew I could I could learn from him, but I didn't had no obviously had no idea how um, yeah how excellent he would be for me um, and me able to, to listen to him. At that stage, I was in my thirties. It wasn't as if I was a kid, and we were able to do it. And I understood what he was doing and had no difficulty with that sort of you know, literally stay two hours, you know, seven o'clock at night, just getting something right. And that's another example of something we've heard about before in this series. And that is the enormous spirit of generosity at the bar. There's an ethics at the bar that um, I think people just have no concept of. I'll give you, I'll give you a really simple example of that. And, and, and Colin's ethics were, like everything else with him, meticulous. He barracked for Essendon, that was a bit of a problem. But Colin was prosecuting a murder trial and Bob Kent was representing the accused. I'd been reading with Colin, so I'd watched him prepare it. He told me how he was going to prosecute it, what he thought Bob would do and what he was going to try and do to counter it. He explained the whole way he was going to prosecute it to me. I said to Colin, well, how do you reckon Bob will go? He said, why don't you go and ask him? So the next day I went round, I sat down with Bob, and I said, look, I'm reading with Colin Hillman. He's explained to me how he's going to prosecute it, and I asked him what he thought you'd do. I said, do you want, can you tell me what you're going to do? And Bob said, yeah, of course. Bob explained the whole way he was going to run the defence to me, and neither of them said, don't tell the other bloke. They just knew I wouldn't. And I thought, this is just a st- at this level, this is dead body stuff, you know? They just inherently... I knew they knew the rules, and they um, they knew that I was old enough to know them. And I really recall that day, or two days. I went home and said to my wife, "This is I, I love this place. I've only been there like a month." How did you get a start? I mean, it's not as if you've been practicing for ten years. You've got a whole stack of contacts, and people are going to brief you. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of the profession wouldn't have known John Smallwood. No, most of them. And so, how did you get a start? 
I virtually knew nobody. I didn't get a brief for the first month. And the first brief I got was off my sister. And it was a smash and bash. And they still, they still do smash and bash. I don't know. Smash and bash, absolutely. They still do it in the magistrate's court. Absolutely. Oh, I didn't know. Yes, that was the first one. And then I was really lucky that um, I started to get work off um, Fitzroy Legal Service, got a lot of Fitzroy Legal Service. And then by dealing with them and finding out just how relaxed I felt with, like, up you know, at the Melbourne Magistrates Court with all the Darrows and stuff like that, then I started to get a lot of um, Aboriginal Legal Service. And then um, Slades and Parsons. Um, in St Kilda and then Simon English. So, and then obviously um, with, Vic, with Legal Aid, started trials probably in 1987. I started doing trials. And from then on in, it was pretty much all. Um, That's pretty. I mean, two years at the bar and you're into trials. Yeah, I was 35 though. Yeah. You know, um, it's one of the reasons that my one of my oldest daughter didn't start actually practising until she's in her 30s and she's going real well. And just this is that maturity, you know, you're sort of, um, you've got kids and you're, you see the world a bit differently. Yeah. You don't walk yeah, in with yeah. that gung ho. Yeah, so I started doing trials then. And yeah, that the, the trials um, went pretty much straight away. What I'd done before that was for one month, for one week in every month, I'd prosecute appeals for the for the crown. Oh yeah, um, that got me friends with the judges because I'd always leave them alone, you know. I mean, you haven't got the reputation of being a prosecutor. No, I prosecuted murder trial, mate. Did you really? Yeah. The first, I, I prosecuted a couple, but um, the first one I was really worried about doing it right because of the crooks. At both stages, I'd done I don't know how many, but a lot of defence murder trials. And the crown said, "Well, you do one." I said, "Yeah, okay." I'll have a go. Money was better. At that point, not anymore. So I said, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And I said, but you've got to guarantee me it's not going to get any publicity. Well, it'll, it'll, it'll do me, you know, out, out in the yards. And so they promised me it wouldn't. And the next thing I know, it's on the bloody front page of the Herald Sun, you know, prosecutor John Smallwood. So I was out at Pentridge on the weekend. To go, see a client, To I see guess. a client. And he said, oh, geez, that was funny. He said, oh, the Herald Sun got your name around the wrong the other day. <laughs> 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 they had you as the prosecutor, Johnny. And I, said, I said, yeah, I saw that, I saw that. <laughs> So that was there. So I did. No, I didn't do a lot of it, but did a, a bit of it. Um, main thing with that was that um, I think, from my point of view, um, as a defence barrister, it gave me the trust of a, of a number of the county court judges that at those days mattered, and you'd remember them: Jimmy Gorman and um, yeah, Bert, yeah, those guys. You know, Leo Hart and those yep. fellas. The, the, yep, the, yep. the, the really good criminal judges that existed then: um, McNabb, Nixon. But I'd be with them for a week, uh, and they got a, they got to trust me. So that when I was defending, they knew I was briefing to the point and they just let, they let me go. So it had that sort of, um, it had that effect. But from then on in, from 87 on, it was um, you know, pretty much all trials. You were briefed as junior to Bob Vernon yeah. in a murder trial in 1991. Yep. And you said it really opened your eyes to what could be done in a courtroom. I'd, um, I'd done trials and I'd always been fairly, um, not limited is not the right word, but straight in terms of how I went about it. And with juries, you know, I always I like talking to juries, you know, just like, like you know, having a beer in a pub, you know. Sometimes I used to start my final addresses with, look, Mr. Tiftstaff, go and get us 13 beers this time, man. That, <laughs> me and the jury had a had a yarn about all this and I'd go, and a shandy for the prosecutor, you know. In the end, I was doing that sort of stuff. But the first year, I was pretty dead straight with it, you know. Like, I never wrote an address out or anything, but I was straight with what I said to them. And then I juniored Vernon and I'd just never seen anything like it. I'd been told what a great advocate he was, but to see Bobby Vernon talk to a jury was just, his power of um, simile and stuff, it was just, and he, and he moved around the courtroom and he just his whole... He took over the room. And I remember um, I was told that Frank Galbraith used to do a very similar thing, that Frank had, could just take the room over, you know, just sheer force of personality. So I was, obviously I was talking to Frank Vincent about it. I watched Frank do a few trials, too, and he wasn't too bad, let me tell you. Vernon in that trial was just astonishing. I had to cross-examine every witness, right? And I've been, was, Bernie Barnes was instructing me. I mean, and I was terrified Bob wasn't even going to do the final address. Because at that stage I think he was living on his boat, the not guilty or something. I can't remember what he was up to. But you know, he was talking to the jury and he was just, it was just, you know, just fantastic. And what was happening was that the prosecutor, 
in those days, the Supreme Court had like the chairs, but they had rollers on them. Right, they'd got rid of the benches, but there were chairs with rollers on. And you had the big, you know, Bob's talking to the jury, and I'd been told by another barrister, don't go anywhere near the bar table while he's addressing. Right, just stay away from him while he's addressing. Right, he can he can do anything. So he he walks up to the prosecutor from behind, and the prosecutor's sitting there. He's looking at the prosecutor's looking at the jury. He's only about five feet away, and and Bob says to the jury, he says, um, he's ladies and gentlemen. He said, is that little man looking at you? And they all started nodding. You know. He said, is that little man making faces at you? And they all nodded at Bob. So Bob goes up. The prosecutor didn't know it was coming because he couldn't hear him coming. Carpet, you know. Gets his chair, throws the chair down the bar table with him sitting in it and yells, behind me, Satan. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy stuff, you know. Can I I just clarify? Yeah, I just love that sort of stuff. Would would an experienced judge have allowed him to do that sort of thing? I think an experienced judge would have known Bob too well to try and stop him. See, See, Vernon... The Supreme Court judges who at that stage had only just started to come from crime. I'm pretty sure Frank Vincent was the first Supreme Court judge with a criminal background. I might pretty, be, pretty close. Might be too. wrong about that. No, I think you might be wrong. Then you had yeah. him and Johnny Coldry, Phil Cummins. They all had. They were the first with criminal backgrounds, and they all they all knew Vernon. They all enjoyed him. So I, I, a middle range judge might have tried to stop him and copped it. And Bob would say things to a jury like he said, "Look, this is one of the one of the um, victims witnesses were his mates." Um, had priors for hitting coppers, you know, and he had a prior for fighting with a, a Maori bouncer, right? And the bouncer had given evidence that night about how he'd thrown him out and all this sort of stuff, you know. And it's just a, his power of analogy. Bob said to the jury, he said, listen, he said, you see, he fought, he, you know, he fought that, he fought that young Maori fella. So you see the size of that Maori? Size of a suburb, size of Alstonwick. <laughs> I think it was watching the, the reaction that Bob got just, just encouraged me that you, you can do that and you can really, I, I really got that. The clinical aspect of it I got from watching Vincent, it was just so precise. But d- did you change your style of advocacy after seeing Bob Vernon? I don't know that I had a style at that point. Liz, my wife, at that stage, she'd done, she used to, even one day she was expecting me to start playing the jury of gum leaf, you know. So I put the foot up and, you know, I'd do that. I had, used to smoke and I had um, a pack of Champion Ruby sticking out of me um, bar jacket, you know, that type of stuff. So I'd play up the Aussie bit. But that was the one where I realised that you can really, no matter how bad it is, um, you can't really engage. So it wasn't so much a change of style, it was more being game enough to do a final address as if I was talking to someone in a pub. Um, and that was what I tried to do. And you can't take somebody else's style. Now, you haven't shaved in 45 years from the day you were admitted. You've got a marked similarity to uh, Ned Kelly. Used to have. <laughs> I'm after but, the, I'm trying to get the old sea dog look now rather than the... <laughs> but you uh, you talked about having a bush ranger approach to your advocacy. Yeah. What's that, what do you mean by that? Leo Hart once said to me years and years ago, everybody, every Australian male has got a bit of the bush ranger in what, you know, just that sense of, um, just that sense of renegade, you know. And I always tried with a jury to sort of say, hey, look, it's okay, you know. Get a jury to think, look, it's okay to be, you know, it's, it's okay to have sort of done the wrong thing. It's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, there's, there's sort of that to it, you know. Getting a jury to feel comfortable with letting your client go, it was usually the, the hardest bit, to get them to feel comfortable with it. Would never try that stuff on if they'd killed a kid or something. And in the end, I had to do a lot of them, and that's what made me really maybe stop. Um, but when you had just sort of your punch ups and your, yeah, you, you know, just, yeah, just like a, you know, bush ranger. I reckon Leo's right. Most, most Australian males got a bit of that. Knockabout. Yeah. Knockabout. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I've read that in preparing your cases, you always eliminated, you never added. Yep. What does that mean, and why did you do it? Um, the hardest thing for young defence barristers to get through their head is that they don't have to prove anything. They feel a need to prove. So that you start off with a Crown case, my whole focus would be I'm not going to call any evidence. I'd called my client twice in 20 years. 
because they had no defence without it. But they're the only two times they ever did it. And what you would do is you would just work out what the Crown needed. And because, then, because they've got to prove their case beyond right. a reasonable doubt. That's right. So what you're trying to do is work out which of the things they had to prove they were weakest on and then try and eliminate, that is, get rid of that, fence things in, encircle them so that you haven't got this amoeba type thing growing out around you and you've got, you're putting out one bushfire at a time. So you're, you're, just, you're just making it as tight as you can, zeroing it, and so that I would never going to an area I didn't need to. Uh, I mean, occasionally I might start a spot fire just to watch a prosecutor panic, but we'll send him down a burrow or something. But you, you, it, was, it was a precision thing. And of all the prosecutors I faced over the years, probably the two that were best at doing that, back to you, were Nigel Parkinson, because Nigel, he knew exactly what he had to prove, and that's what he set out to prove, and everything else you could, you could forget about. And he was really difficult, and Graham Hicks. Very and and Graham, who's now... On the county court with you? Yeah, he's, he's retired now. He just retired a little while ago. But um, Hicksy was Hicksy was like that too. He was banged, you know, just straight at it. Does not say the prosecutors didn't do their job properly. It's not what I'm saying at all. But um, Nigel and I once, and this, I was talking about this yesterday to somebody, true story, Nigel and I once I had a kid who'd um, stabbed a woman in a nursery. Um, and Nigel and I sat down to work this out, and he was prosecuting it, obviously. Um, we sat down and worked out what we needed and what we didn't need. And we could both be quite straight with each other. So when we worked out what we needed and what we didn't need, we ended up with no witnesses. <laughs> yeah, I was admitting he, he, he stabbed her. She, you know, was, everything was getting admitted. Um, so all we ended up was with the, the jury watching and listening to a record of interview and then deciding whether he meant to kill her or not. But, yeah, that, that, that's what I mean by the, the refining it to what it's really about. And then you then you can talk to a jury about what it's really about and you can focus on, um, look, it's okay. You can let him go. It's okay. You mightn't like it, but it's okay. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. John, for over a decade, you did what is called back-to-back murder trials. Pretty much, yeah. That is... After finishing one trial, you'd immediately start another trial, having been preparing the latter trial while running the former trial. Yeah. This must have been absolutely brutal for you. How did you do it and what were the effects upon you? Um, I did it um, at the expense of a lot of things. What I've always tried to do is I only have the one in my head at the one time. So I'm running a trial. I expel everything else from it. I would then, on week, it took up you know, seven days a week. 12 hours a day type of thing. It was more like a, a, a compartmentalising in my own head so it didn't all get confusing. So I'd be running the one trial and the other trial I'd be getting ready for but not in an emotional sense. I used to have a real sense of commitment to that trial. So I'd look through it and I technically I'd prepare the second trial but only technically. I'd look at the evidence and see where I needed to go. So I'd have, the, I'd have the, 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 the battle plan drawn out. I would then also be running the trial that I'm running and, and emotionally committed to that one. When that one ended, Supreme Court judges were pretty good to me. Um, if I lost, they'd usually give me a couple of days. They understood, they'd let me go, um, give me a couple of days off type of thing. I would then prepare the next one. Now, murder trials tend to go at a relatively leisurely pace, if I can put it that way, so that I'd know in advance which witnesses were going to be called. I'd know which witnesses were a problem. So again, I've got my battle plan ready. So usually, um, the first day or so of a murder trial, it's in panelling, openings. In those days, um, defense, most defence barristers didn't open, but I did. Again, Supreme Court judges would let me do it. I only speak for 30 seconds. I used to call it station identification, you know. I'm here to represent him and, you know, we'll see how we travel. But the problem with that was that, um, and this is something I spoke about with Frank Vincent after, after I'd, 
you have to retire, actually, from the bar. It came at massive expense. Nothing else in your life seems that important. It reduced the importance stuff. The kids have a problem. Yeah, all right, you know. It certainly increased my drinking. I mean, seriously. So that it just be this total focusing, you know, um, and unable to properly communicate with the kids and stuff like that. I mean, in the end, I tried to. But um, it cost. Again, I'm talking about Frank Vincent all the time, but he was one of my main mentors, really, even though I never read with him or anything. It was all with him as a judge and me as a barrister. When you run them like that, every time you walk out, win or lose, you leave a bit of yourself in there because you've committed emotionally. Did, um, did Frank say that to you? Yeah, he said that to me, yeah. Um, he said to me one day after I'd lost a trial and I was really quite stricken by it, I was sitting in the body of the court. I couldn't, I just, I just, you know, I just froze in the body of the court. I was still there about 20 minutes after the court had emptied and Frank just came down and... Um, just sat with me for about 10, 15 minutes and said, mate, you know, this is, you do what I did and it's going to do you. But, and that's what he was saying, that it just, every, every, it just takes a bit out of you. Um, and once you've done it dozens of times, there's a lot gone. And you, you don't, you don't get it back and it's sort of like, a, it's tiring. It's so, Freddie James, Freddie said to me one day up in the Eastern Club that, um, get out of there by the time you're 50, boy, no one lives. Anyone who's doing murder trials into their 50s doesn't make the distance. Vincent sort of said the same thing to me too. It, it, it's, it's a young man's sport. Unless you don't care. If you care and you're hard and you're doing it, it's a young man's sport. So you're rescued from this, what I could rightly be called a murderous work regime. Yeah, yeah. By a call from the then Attorney General, Rob Hulls, yep. offering you a spot on the county court. Yep. Was that why you accepted? Because you thought you're just about, there was no more I, petrol left in the tank? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I was tired, Michael, and it was, it was making me sick. And I knew that. Um, at that point in time, in the preceding two years, I'd probably done. I don't know, five or six murders of little of little kids, and you'd have to sort of study the photos, and you know, get, you know, and that was really starting to get to me. I was starting to feel sick. Winning a trial was becoming a relief, as opposed to a sense of achievement. You know what I mean? And now anyway, Rob just rang up and said, "Mate, you want to put the feet up? You know, you don't look flash." Initially, I said, "Look, I have to think about it." And then I sort of sat down. I thought logically, I was fifty. I had no super. It's like most criminal barristers, you haven't got any super. And that played a part in it. Um, one was the pension. Um, I probably wouldn't have done it without that, I reckon. Which, I should point out, is very common for a lot of judges, except for that reason, to accept because of the judge's pension. Yeah, oh, yeah criminal criminal law judges, yeah. Yeah. The, the civil, um, a lot of the civil barristers, it's a significant loss of income. But for those, for the old legal aid hacks like myself, um, it's, yeah, it's all right. So, yeah, so the pension's not, it, 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 I reckon I would have done it without it. But realistically, I was tired and it was a change of direction. There was a security to it. I knew I would get time off. As a, as a barrister, I had virtually no... I lived it. Don't worry about holidays. The whole holiday, I was... The next murder trial was going through my head, you know, um, and it got rid of all that stuff. I mean, now I, I very rarely come out of the building at lunchtime. I work through lunchtime just so I don't have to take anything home. And I've been... It's nearly 20 years now. But at that point, yeah, I was tired... Um, and I reckon it was a one-way trip. Yeah, you'd had enough. And that's, I'd had enough, yeah. So it was a good decision. Yeah. For the past 12 years or so, you've been the judge in charge of the Koori Court. Yep. Can you tell us what the court is and how it's different from the normal criminal yep. courts of the county court? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the judge in charge now. I haven't done it for a couple of years, but for about a decade I was. The first thing to understand is that the, the rule of law is exactly the same. In a mainstream courtroom, the barrister stands up and speaks on behalf of the accused. You know, you have to... Your crown opening read out, victim impact statements read out. The barrister stands up and does a plea. You then have legal submissions and the judge hands down a sentence. The only difference that occurs in the Curry Court, and it's a big one, is that the accused comes out of the dock and comes and sits at the bar table. The judge sits in the middle. I used to just 
like I am now, just in a shirt. Some judges wear. So I don't know. I don't. I just let them all go. It was their business. Elder on either side. So uh, these are these are elders from Aboriginal communities. Communities, yeah. yes. Yeah. A, a, an elder from the community of the accused. Try to so that we that, that, that we started in Latrobe Valley. So at that point, I think there might have been um, there were certainly local people. We got murdered a couple of Yorta Yorta. Most of the elders were Gunai Kunai. You know, so they're all all local elders who know the family history. If, if 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 one of us is asked name your you know your relatives going outwards, you might get to about a dozen and start to struggle. They can get you give you two hundred. Almost never have I gone in down there with an accused that the elders didn't know something about them, their family, their the mission. Right? So they know who the person is, and they then with me, I would just sort of say explain a couple of things. You know, like the courtroom's been smoked, that type of thing. It's a signal of a fresh start. I'd make it very clear that I was the one who passed the sentence, not. The elders, that they're just there to, to assist, to get information, to help him. Right? So the elders have no input into the sentencing no, of the no, accused. Uh, no. And can I just clarify, it's only for pleas, it's not for contests. That's right. Well, you couldn't do a contest. I mean, yes. you know, you'd be, the local politics would get out of control. Yes. <laughs> no, so it's, it's only for pleas. They've got to plead guilty and no sex offending. In the, the ones in the regional areas are much more, I think, much more powerful for a number of factors. Most of the regional ones are um, community-related ag burgs, Fights over things. Um, the Melbourne ones all tended to be ice arm robberies. Really? So, yeah. So the ones in, in as you say, in the, in the regions are a burglary of, of a of a home with violence to, or something. Yeah, that's that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The ones in Melbourne, and these, I mean, these are gross generalisations, but the yeah. ones in Melbourne tend to be more the ice affected 20 year, 20 year old sticking up the Seven Eleven. Yeah. You know, with the syringe. You know, that that type of thing. Yeah. And jumping from no prize to a stick up. You know. Yeah. Um, and I still worked well. You know, the Curry Court still worked well, but we were, we were cornered. It gave us no chance of rehabilitative sentencing, if you know what I mean, because the offending was just too serious. Yeah. So that um, I would just say who I was, introduce everyone around the table, then just leave it to the elders. And they would tag team. We, we, with with, the, with the, the Curry Court officer, we'd work out whether you needed two female elders or a male and a female or two men or whatever it might be. And there'd be stuff that they wouldn't tell me, obviously, about, you know, blackfella stuff that's none of my yep. business. Yep. And we work that way. Now, what they'll do is that they will um, – there's a communication. They showed me the body language to use, you know, never fold your arms, this type of thing, just sit back in your seat like that. I'd always push my seat back, let the elders come forward. And I'd say to the kid, listen, I'm the, I'm the gov, mate, I know that. You don't have to talk to me. It's not a parole board meeting, you know. Um, they, they, you talk to the elders. And then they'll start talking to them and their eyes just fix in. And so they, they when you say their eyes fix in, we often see – um, I guess on television, where Indigenous people in that sort of a situation, that their eyes will be to the ground and they won't engage with authority. Yes, exactly. The Koori Court is different to that. Very much. They, I tend to find that by the end of the conversation, they will make eye contact with me. It's a respect thing, uh, also a shyness thing. But the younger ones won't look into the eyes of an older one. I tell you what, at the table they do. When you get those elders, that's not a um, that that's a bang. The, the sheer the, the need in seeing their faces as they talk to the elders that they, they need stuff you know they need well they need their culture is what they need you'll often often have extreme violence as a child you'll often have um, very very dysfunctional families alcoholism and the like you'll nearly always have um, sorry business that's never been dealt with sorry what what, sorry what is sorry business um, death in a family yes. death of people that never gets dealt with see one of the big things for a black fellow if you're in jail and you can't get to the funeral like there's really quite Massive depression because of stuff like that. So a lot of undealt with sorry business. 
Sometimes a kid will come in all cocky, you know, come to Kirikul because you get a lesser sentence. Well, you don't. I reckon the first few years we were giving heavier sentences because we were so paranoid about, you know, what people would perceive of it. Mm. Subconsciously, we're giving them too much, I reckon. Mm. They'll come in cocky as you like, and then within half an hour, they're in, well, within 10 minutes, they're in tears. As, as, as it starts to come out to somebody they know loves and trusts them, what then occurs is they'll go through the whole process with him. Why is this? And again, you get the sorry business, the alcohol, the drugs. They'll, um, you know, you've got to get a job. Um, yeah, and that conversation can take anywhere between, with my, in my courts, um, I've sat there for two hours doing that, just listening to the elders and um, saying how they don't want to be, you know, about death rates and you're going to die and what do you want and but trying to get them to take acceptance. Like I know Lordy, one of the things he'll do is if we've got a kid there that's been using ice, I've got a, I've got a bunch of photos of um, ice addicts with their teeth, you know, especially the girls, teeth out and that sort of stuff. Lordy will, will make them sit there with the photos of ice addicts in front of them. If it's a belting, um, he'll make them sit there with the photos of the victim in front of them. For the whole hour and a half, uh, how's it like that if that was done to your brother or how do you just really make them accept personal responsibility for what they've done? That's the first thing. Once they do that, it's then the cultural. Um, you'll feel better if, yeah. So that's what happens, right? And at the end of that conversation, I will then usually, con- you know, if they've done well, I'll say I know how hard it that is for you to do this in front of a white fella and everything else. Um, and now I go back up there and we work out what we're going to do with you and just reinforce that the sentence I'm about to hand down because the county court, I'm giving threes and fours and fives, you know, is from me, not them. So yeah. th- that 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 finishes. Um, I go back up on the bench. It's like a normal case again. What interests me it's out of that? a bit that... long-winded. Sorry. But that, no, that, no, 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 John. That, that's how it works, yeah. But but then those uh, that accused person gets sentenced to a white fella jail. Yeah, but... Um, you now have most of them seem to get sent to Fulham. Fulham has a, a Koori unit um, that is properly resourced. Um, we've had some fantastic turnarounds in Koori. Blokes I was certain would be dead within 12 months of working. And the first 60 we did, right, after two years, one had re-offended and that was a drinking in the street in Bensdale. But, yeah, that, 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 that's, 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 what it, that's what it's about. John, one of the criticisms, I think, of the Koori Court is that it creates one law for blackfellas and one law for whitefellas. Yeah, and that's just that's, that's not right. That's just totally wrong. The law that's applied and the sentencing principles that are apl- applied are exactly the same. What it is um, is not many Aboriginals are going to tell a white barrister their story. They aren't going to do it. Um, they might if they trust them. That's going to take a long time but they can tell their story to the elders. So you actually get the truth and you also get a, 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 a greater confidence in the re- – well, now we know that it really improves their chances of rehabilitation. And that's all it is. It's an inf- We get more information. I know people have this sense of um, one law for them. It's not It's not that at all. It's, it's, a, it's a means of obtaining information. And from the community's point of view, you don't want these blokes offending again. We're all betting. That's right. That's the um, that's a criticism that's been levelled plenty of times in media and everything else, and it's just wrong. John, it started in the Latrobe Valley. Yep. To where is it spread now, the Koori Court? Where, um, where does it sit and how often does it sit? Well, first. At Latrobe Valley, we then um, incorporated Bansdale into that because what we found was that the, the Bansdale people couldn't get the, had to get the mall. That's all very well for you and me, mate, but they, you know, no one's got a driver's license, no money for the trunk. You know, like it's not that easy. So anyway, then we did start doing Bansdale so that families could come, and that changed everything. We had 20, 30 people in the room. Next was Melbourne, then Shepparton, then Mildura. I wasn't. I'd already um, given away as chief judge, and then after that was um, uh, Warrnambool. So uh, that that's the extent of it. It's better if you can do it in their own on their own country. And have their own elders. Mm. So in, in Mildura and Ship, the elders are going to, same thing as the Gunai, the elders are going to know who they are and what their families yeah. are. You know? yeah. um, that really makes a difference. The, the rate of, and each, each of those groups has one or two seriously powerful elders. They're all good at it, but some of them are just astonishing. 
You said that of all the crooks you've dealt with over the years, Indigenous people best understand the impact of what they have done. Yep. Why is that? They're able to relate it to their own family circumstances. I always get the prosecutor to read the victim impact statement to them. Not sitting in the dock where they can stare at the floor, but from three feet away, like, no, sorry, 1.6 metres away like we are. Um, (laughs) um, I get them to read it and the impact on them. They never shake their head in disbelief like some of these galahs down the back do. They, they, they cry, they apologise, they know, they know effect. They have seen their family victims of this sort of thing. One, they, they are more prepared to take on personal responsibility. They will often start off trying to blame the drugs. Now, let's break that down in about 10 seconds. And a lot, a lot, of, them will, a lot of records of interview, oh, yeah, would have only done it because of this, and the, and, and the psychologist, oh, yeah, this, you know. The, the Curries, um, we keep using that expression, but I'm sure there's no different throughout Australia, um, they are much more able to accept that personal responsibility for what they've done and to understand how it affects the person they did it to. Um, they've had it done to them, they've had it done to their family, uh, and they are ashamed that they've done it to someone else. And it doesn't matter whether they've done it to a black fella or a white fella? No. No. They, um, and it's the first place the elders always go. As soon as the conversation, not always, but most of the time it's the first place the elders go. How would you like it this if this was done to your brother? How would you like this if this was done to your mother, your father? How would you like it if um, you came home and all your property was gone? And bang, it's, it's like literally 30 seconds and they're in. Now, John, what, a, what about you? What keeps you motivated? How come you're still going as a judge 20 years later? And you've gone past one of the retirement dates, I think. Oh, you've got to go next year. Up until maybe, up in, well, up until the last 12, well, last 12 months are strange. We won't even talk about that, obviously. The main thing that kept me going up until then was Curry Court. I was going to retire about uh, maybe five years ago, when I could have at 65. I was, was at a point where a lot of the judges I'd never met didn't know who they were. They were not my peers at almost all. I think Duncan Allen might have been the last of my true peers in that sense. And then a new lot of, I mean, some great appointments the last year, 10 years, I reckon. Then there were a whole bunch of appointments of people who I had, I had been embarrassed when they were very much junior or they were young solicitors who then became judges. And all of a sudden, I had a peer group back who um, would come and talk to me, come and discuss a sentence with me. And it's good for them to have the older judge there, you know, when the press go them or the Court of Appeal go them. And that makes me feel useful. It's like in Thomas the Tank, you know, when, when, you, when he's done really well, they put him in the, he's allowed to sleep in the useful, useful engine shed. Yeah, so, so that's, that, that it was the Curry Court kept me going. And then uh, the last probably two or three years since I haven't been there has been circuit. Been able to do my Curry Court on circuit, know all the elders, got all my mates. Like up in Europe last year, year before, they, came, they sent the message, I judge, you know, we're going to do, um, do a wallaby down the riverbank, you know, bake a wallaby down the riverbank and the coals want to come down for tea, you know. So I thought, geez, that's, you know, that they trust me, you know, Shit, that, that's, all, that's all right. So I sent the message back, yeah, yeah, no, no worries, fellas, you know what, you know, they tell me, you know, eight o'clock. Anyway, I'm, you know, I was talking to one of somebody up in Mildura, one of the, you know, one of the local blackfellas. I said, there's, there's, I, just, I said, that's just, you know, I just feel really good about it. He said, he said, judge, he said, they only want you down there so the coppers won't turn up. <laughs> <laughs> Stricken, and that sounds true. No, 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 absolutely no, no, I true. love that stuff. I just love that stuff. Um, but yeah, so circuits kept me going. I enjoy getting to know, and I always make a point of getting to know the registry staff, find out what their problems are. Always make a point of finding out what the local coppers' problems are. Often, there's a real sense of um, team effort, I suppose, out of all that. Getting to know the local practitioners, you know, a few beers with the local practitioners. Um, most of the barristers who go on circuit, I've known for a long time. 
we all get on well, understand the and, and their instructors usually. So it's a social sort of thing, and it's, it's also one. Um, I always make a real point of um, talking to the local schools, um, go to the school, and just sort of, you know, humanise the system. And, and a lot of those country kids wouldn't even think about a tertiary education, wouldn't even cross their minds, you know. I mean, yeah, it's a great thing to do. Yeah, so, yeah. so well, that's, that's what, that's what nowadays, really, um, it's a cir- it's circuit that, um, that keeps me going. But, yeah, so that, that, but I don't know how much longer, mate, I, you know, you reach a point. John, it's been an absolute privilege having you here today and for us to hear, to learn particularly about the Koori Court is a very valuable experience for us and anyone who listens to this podcast. Thank you very much. No, no problems, mate. Good luck with it all. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show, and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate, and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Your host is former lawyer and Greenslist clerk Michael Green. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio, and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. With COVID restrictions limiting numbers inside the County Court of Victoria, we are currently recording our shows at Owen Dixon Chambers, on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue the discussion here today. 